In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began a Lenten series, and I'm inviting you to think with me about the whole experience of hope in our lives. And um, I began um, by just pointing out why I have chosen this theme. Um, first of all, because it seems to me that hope is as essential to us um, spiritually as breathing is to us um, physically. It's sort of the, uh, the corollary to the old aphorism, where there is life, there is hope. The, really, the deeper truth is that where there is hope, there is life. A second reason is not just the times that we are living in which will require a hopefulness, but also the season that we are now in, the Lenten season. Um, years ago, Barbara Brown Taylor, one of my favorite Episcopalians, uh, pointed out to me that the whole call to repentance, um, which is very much a part of this Lenten season, is really grounded in an implicit hopefulness. In other words, it would be silly to ask people to make changes in their lives, to turn around and go in a different direction, which is what repentance is really all about. It would be silly to do that if change were not really possible. But the third reason, and really the most influential, is frankly that I would just like to be a more hopeful person myself. And I pray that for you as well. The truth is, whatever our background, whatever our upbringing, each of us faces a choice on a regular basis as to how we will look at an unknown future. We can approach it with a sense of hopefulness, or we can approach it with a sense of dread. I was reading an article not long ago, and one of the lines that stuck with me is that we should expect something good to come out of every situation, which seems to me like a lofty goal, and I admit not the way I always approach life. Um, I'm sort of like the old black preacher who uh, a while back said, there are some parts uh, of me that just haven't heard the word. <laughs> In other words, the gospel hasn't quite gotten to those parts of me. Elizabeth O'Connor, who died a number of years ago now, uh, used to say that the great commission of Jesus, you remember, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' last words to his disciples. She said the great commission has an internal as well as an external dimension. In other words, go ye into all parts of your inner world and baptize them. Bring them all into the light of the gospel. And, um, and I suppose that would be my desire, not only for me, but for you. And so, with that um, sort of prelude, uh, the obvious question is, how do we do this? How do we move into um, the great, uh, uh, authentic hopefulness that we would like? And this morning I want to suggest two avenues that I think can help us to access that kind of energy. 
And those two avenues grow out of the whole understanding of human nature that comes from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 that John just read to us, the words that are read at more weddings than not in this country. Um, so you remember the first part of 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. Love is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful. But in the second half, he says, we humans only know in part. We prophesy in part. We see as through a glass darkly. Now, I take that as a, a critical piece of our human condition. And if you take those words seriously, if you break down practically in terms of what they really imply, they say two very important things, both of which are true of every one of us. The first is, we don't know everything. We are finite creatures. We are housed in mystery. But we do know some things. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you will hold those two together in a kind of creative tension, if on the one hand you will admit in humility that you didn't create this world, there is much that is beyond your comprehension, but at the same time that you do know some things because of the story of the gospel, because of the revelation of who God really is, if you will put those two together, humility and genuine revelation, then you will find two avenues that can help you to live into hopefulness. So the first thing, of course, is to embrace this sense of humility that is appropriate to mystery. The prophet Isaiah says, it is he that made us and not we ourselves. So we are like the pot in the potter's hands. We're actually going to come back to that passage from Jeremiah in a couple of weeks. So I didn't make myself. There is so much about this life that I cannot explain. Something beyond how my cell phone works or my sump pump that I put in this week. I don't know how any of them actually work and some of them are not working. One of the ways of understanding um, the limits of what we know is to just take an inventory of some of the things that you have been surprised at in the course of your lifetime. So for example, for me, that would be uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, or the election of the first African-American president, or for that matter, our current president, or um, some of the things along the way that have surprised you. You expected one thing and you found another. I have a friend who periodically conducts grief support groups in his church. It actually grows out of his own experience of losing his, his uh, daughter. And um, I remember him saying that when he went through that, he was surprised in both ways. On the one hand, he thought that there would be people who would be there for him who never showed up in any way. And to this day, he is not sure why. On the other hand, he says, there were people I never dreamed would care about my loss who were unbelievably caring and sensitive. The truth is we never know all that is going on in the minds and hearts 
even of those who are closest to us. I was reading about an ophthalmologist recently um, who was dealing with an older woman. She had lost the sight in one of her eyes, and he was running some tests on her and discovered that she was on the way to losing sight in her other eye. And of course, he, he wanted nothing less than to have to break that news to her. Um, and so that day, with fear and trembling, he went into his office and he broke the news. Her husband began to cry because, of course, he was so sorry that this was happening. But then the doctor said that he was amazed that a kind of serenity came over this older woman's face. She said, well, I hate this. I mean, I just hate it. But listen, I know there is going to be so many wonderful things to see in the life beyond that maybe it's just as well that I rest for a while and not use my vision. So I'll just accept whatever time I have got less as a time to remember all of the beautiful things that I have seen until I have my vision to see in the next life. Well, he was absolutely astounded. I mean, so much so that when the couple got up to leave, um, the husband said, what do I owe you? And the, and the doctor said, you don't owe me a dime. Um, you have given me something today I never thought I could experience in another human being. And my point is there is so much that we don't know. There are so many surprises. I, I remember the Jewish rabbi who said to the Jewish person, there is only one unforgivable sin, and that is the sin of despair. He said, from a human point of view, despair is presumptuous because it is saying something about the future that we have no right to say because we have not been there. We don't know enough. Anthony DeMello, a wonderful Indian Jesuit, spent most of his life gathering these wonderfully inspirational stories from all of the different contemplative traditions around the world. And among his favorites is one that I've shared with you before about the old Chinese farmer who had this horse, uh, which he depended on for literally everything. When it was time to plant in the spring, it was this horse who he hooked up to the plow and broke the ground. Um, later at the end of the season, he would take the surplus that he had gathered, he would hitch the horse to a wagon, and he would pull it into town to sell. There wasn't a day that went by that this horse didn't figure significantly in the life of that old farmer. One day a bee stuck St uh, stung the uh, horse around the neck and caused him to run away up into the hills. The old farmer tried to chase after him, but he couldn't keep up. And so at last, as the sun was going down, he had to come back and tell his wife that his much-beloved horse uh, had disappeared into the hills. Well, this was a little village in interior China. Almost nothing exciting ever happened. And so any event like this um, really got around. So everywhere he went for the next week, his neighbors would commiserate by saying, you know, I'm sure sorry to hear about your bad luck. And he would respond, bad luck, good luck, who is to say? Well, two weeks later, 
To his amazement, here comes his beloved horse descending from the hillside with six wild horses that he has befriended on his little adventure. And somehow the farmer is able to corral them all, sort of an economic bonanza. And uh, so everyone in the town for the next week comes up to him and says, sure glad to hear about your good luck. And he responds, good luck, bad luck, who is to say? Well, his son uh, was very anxious to make something of this economic bonanza, so he decides to break these wild horses, but it turned out he was very inexperienced at that, and so one day one of the horses bucks him, and he breaks his leg in three places. And of course the word got around, and everyone wanted to commiserate. He said to them, bad luck, good luck, who is to say? Two weeks later, a war broke out between two of the cities in interior China. The army came through conscripting every able, ma every-bodied male under 50 to fight. And of course, his son would have had to go except for this injury. And it proved to be fortuitous because virtually every villager who went was either killed or badly injured. And of course, the farmer said, good luck, bad luck, who is to say? And DeMello used to love to tell that story because it reminds us of the mystery that surrounds every one of us. So the first avenue to hope is to remember all that we don't know. However, the second avenue is through what we do know. And what I want to suggest to you is that of all the people in the world, we Christians are the most fortunate because we have been exposed to the greatest story that has ever been told. I think Bill Beekner was absolutely right when he said, we are not better than other people who have not heard the gospel. We are just luckier. We have had this great story told to us again and again and again that is finally, for all of its diversity and nuances, about this mystery, the mystery that lies behind it all and holds it all together. Someone once said, to the mystery of God, Jesus gives a face. And on that face, he puts a smile. So what is this story? Well, it is the story that we tell here from week to week throughout an entire year as we walk through the Christian year. From Advent to Christmas, and now through Lent, all of it culminating on Easter morning. And rather than rehearse that whole story, um, let me remind you of a dream that my old mentor, John Claypool, had many years ago. Um, he talks about, in this dream, he talks about how he and his son wanted to help this uh, couple in the community who were very troubled, and really a whole family. Um, these were folks who had pretty much used up all the compassion of their friends and of all the helping institutions in their community. They had been put in prison for stealing and a number of other crimes. But John and his son decided that together they were going to try one more time to uh, reach these people and help them turn around. And so John and his son let them 
have a house that was on their property. They loaned them some money. They tried every which way that they could to help make them productive members of society. In this dream, one day John's son comes to him and says, you know, let me go out there and meet with them myself. They're intimidated by you. You're, you're so much older. Let me go and see if I can't get through to them. John said he was uneasy, but he finally agreed. And so the son went. And uh, at first, they were just astonished. Uh, they hadn't expected the son to come by himself. But then he said that old, surly destructiveness that had been so much a part of their life and how they looked at life began to resurface, and they began to ridicule the son verbally. In his fantasy, John saw one of the elders get behind the son and pin back his arms, and one of the sisters began to spit in his face. And then another brother took out a pocket knife, and it was awful. He began to threaten him, and then he began to cut into his cheek, and then he began to stab him repeatedly in the chest. When he didn't come home, John went to look for him. He took a flashlight because it was dark, and there he found his son's bloody corpse. John said when he remembered why he had come, what his intentions were, and then he saw what they had done to him, he was filled with a rage that was bottomless. But then he said, as I stood there, in that terrible contrast between what might have been and what was, it occurred to me, if I had the power to raise my son back from the dead, it would never in a million years occur to me to send him back to the people who did this. But you realize, don't you, that that is exactly what God did on Easter morning. It's not just that God could raise Jesus. The miracle is that he would ever have wanted to. Friends, if not even Good Friday could turn the heart of God to despair, do you see why despair is not only presumptuous from a human point of view, but from a theological point of view, it is downright heretical. One more story. And this one comes from an Episcopal priest in New Jersey. Um, having watched a, a, a huge thunderstorm roll by their house as they were getting ready for bed one night. He said to his wife, you know, I have always loved thunderstorms. I love to watch God wash the world this way. He said there were flashes of lightning. There were claps of thunder. But then he said, all of a sudden, there was this terrific strike of lightning and a horrible, horrible clap. As he looked out the window, he began to see sparks that looked like giant fireflies going past the window. And then he began to smell smoke. He dashed up the stairs and into the attic, and sure enough, lightning had struck the corner of the roof, and the house was now on fire. Well, at first, he didn't think it was very serious. He went and got his little handheld fire extinguisher, but that wasn't enough. 
He ran down into the kitchen to get some water. But again, it wasn't enough. And at that point, he realized that things were much more serious. So he called the fire department. He gathered his wife and his children. We've got to get outside, he said, and out they went, ill-clad and now drenched by the rain. He watched as the fire department rushed into the attic and began to tear things apart so that they could get at where the fire was. And then he said he watched with horror as the flames began to surface over the roof. And at that point, pure panic took over. He said, I stood there saying, I can't believe this is happening. We are about to lose everything that we have spent a lifetime accumulating, all of our memorabilia, all of our future. He said, I stood there realizing it might all be a terrible loss. And a sense of panic came over me. But then he said, from a place that he still can only identify as a place of grace, all of a sudden, another way of looking at what was happening began to take over his consciousness. And he said, okay, I'm going to give this whole situation to God. And if, in fact, the whole house burns down, we will be after that in the very same place we are at this moment, namely in the hands of God. And this God, whom I have come to know, can make good things come out of bad things, can enable us not only to survive, but to thrive no matter what happens. He said, a kind of peace came over me that no matter what happens, we are going to be in the hands of God. Now, the sequel to this is that the house didn't completely burn down. He said they did have to go through a lot of inconvenience. They had to put a new roof on the house. There was quite a bit of water damage. For months, they were seriously inconvenienced. But he went on to say, the peace that came over him gave him a renewed sense of hope that no matter what happens, God is going to enable me not only to survive, but to thrive. Looking back, that experience gave him a renewed appreciation of what it means to have a roof over your head. He said it gave him much more compassion towards people who are refugees and immigrants and who have lost everything. He said we wound up renovating our house in ways we never would have before that. Looking back, he said, what seemed like an overwhelming tragedy turned out to be a strange experience of blessing. I would like to get in touch with that kind of hope, wouldn't you? And the way to get at it is, first of all, to remember all the things that we don't know. We see as in a mirror dimly. But also to remember what we do know. It is the greatest story ever told. And to live into that story, it seems to me, is to live into hope. Amen.